Thanks to this season's presenting sponsor, Kohler. They design innovative sinks and faucets for people who do their best work in the kitchen. Hey, Proof listeners, it's Bridget, and I want to tell you about something I think you're going to love. It's NakedWines.com. They bring delicious, affordable wines straight from independent winemakers directly to your home. Unlike the big wine retailers, NakedWines.com is a customer-funded wine business. With the help of the more than 100,000-member angel community, NakedWines.com supports independent winemakers to make their passion projects. And you can become an angel, too, with a monthly membership so you can support independent winemakers and get access to delicious, exclusive wines in return. Go to NakedWines.com proof for $50 off your first order. It was the year 1949. In the United States, a gallon of gasoline would cost you 17 cents. George Orwell was warning us that Big Brother was watching in his brand new novel, 1984. And Gene Kelly and Frank Sinatra were singing and dancing on the town. Life after World War II was getting better by the minute. But the Cold War was just heating up. President Truman's dramatic announcement that Russia had the atom secret caused State Departments all over the world to stir uneasily. The grim vision of an atomic war, which would leave complete desolation in its wake, is a Scientists of all stripes worked endlessly in the goal of obtaining nuclear supremacy in the U.S.-Soviet arms race. But out on Long Island, a team of scientists and researchers they were busy cultivating a very different atomic age, one more focused on life rather than death. It was the world's first atomic farm. A three-acre circular field sat about 70 miles east of Manhattan, and smack in the center of the field was an upright metal tube. Inside that tube, a cylinder of the radioactive isotope cobalt-60 which radiated the field with wave after wave of gene-altering gamma rays. All sorts of crops were planted in this field. There was corn, tomatoes, oats, barley. And over time, the plants began to change. The crops closest to the cobalt source died, and other plants were stunted in their growth, or they became gnarled, sprouted tumorous growths. The scientists took note of all of these changes, but all the while they were looking for something, anything beneficial. Were there increased yields? Could these plants develop a tolerance for drought or maybe even a resistance to disease? The scientists were looking for useful mutants. From America's Test Kitchen, I'm Bridget Lancaster, and this is Proof. A few years ago, I went on a hiking trip across the Caribbean island of Dominica. This is Stephanie Roby, a television producer in Baltimore. One night, it poured rain, and the next day, as I was walking through the jungle, I noticed that the forest floor ahead of me was littered with giant yellow grapefruit. So I took one and opened it, and it didn't really look like the grapefruit I'm used to seeing at the store. It was chock full of seeds, and the flesh was white instead of red or pink. 
but I didn't think much of it until this past summer, when it came up in conversation with a coworker of mine. His name is Joe. He's one of those people who always seems to have a piece of trivia for pretty much any subject. And then I mentioned that some grapefruit are red because the radiation that had been done to the seeds to make them redder, and I didn't really know a whole lot about it, but I thought it was a cool fact because... Just to be clear, Joe's talking about nuclear radiation. I'd never heard of using radiation for breeding, which is kind of surprising because I've actually worked on a lot of stories about farming, traditional plant breeding, genetic engineering. So, of course, I immediately Googled red grapefruit nuclear radiation, I think before the conversation was even over. And it turns out he was right. But it's not just grapefruit. There's a type of peppermint, one of the varieties that's used to make toothpaste, gum, mouthwash, candy canes. And this particular variety is descended from peppermint stems that were irradiated or exposed to radiation back in the 50s. And then there's a a radiation bread malting barley that's called Golden Promise. And it was used in a lot of Scottish distilleries and breweries back in the 1970s and 80s. Funny enough, you can still find it in a few things today. The whole time I was working on this piece, whenever I'd mention it to someone, they were usually at least a little freaked out. And that makes a lot of sense because... Typically, when we talk about radiation, we're talking about something scary. It's the atomic bomb. It's Chernobyl. And now you're also saying it's grapefruit and peppermint and beer. And more than just that, it's probably also important to note that there's a huge difference between radiation bread and irradiated. So let's say you eat radiation bread grapefruit every day for breakfast. The grapefruit you're eating hasn't actually been exposed to radiation, Its ancestors were exposed to radiation, in this case, back in the 60s. Well, as we've mentioned, grapefruit aren't the only crop that scientists irradiated, and they certainly were not the first. So we're going to go back to the very beginning, to when scientists first started irradiating plants in the early 1900s. In 1919, a young scientist named Louis Stadler was pursuing his doctorate in the agriculture department at the University of Missouri. He was quiet, dark-haired, and at 23, he struck his professors as thoroughly unimpressive. He was called lazy and careless, and years later, one of his mentors recalled how, at the time, he'd seemed, quote, a lost and uncertain soul, end quote. But he wouldn't be unimpressive for long. Somewhere around 1920, Stadler found his calling in the budding field of plant genetics. Gregor Mendel, who was an Austrian monk, pioneered the field in 1865 when he presented the results of a decade-long research project, results that proposed certain laws of heredity. In other words, how traits like eye color or height are passed down from one generation to the next. But no one really paid attention to Mendel's work until after he died, and so it wasn't until the turn of the century that the concepts of heredity and of genes and of genetic mutations really became established within the scientific community. And so Stadler was reading around in the field of genetics and came upon this idea of using x-rays to see if he could disrupt established patterns of heredity. This is Dr. Helen Ann Curry, a historian of science and technology at the University of Cambridge. She wrote the book Evolution Made to Order, about the history of plant breeding in 20th century America. She wrote the book Evolution Made to Order, 
about the history of plant breeding in 20th century America. So anyways, Stadler took corn tassels, which are the male flower of a corn plant, and exposed them to x-rays, and then used the x-rayed tassels to pollinate female corn plants. And it was in the process of conducting these experiments that he induced what he thought was a mutation. A mosaic pattern in some of the corn kernels grew out of this irradiated union. But it wasn't really clear whether this was actually a mutation or something else. So Stadler branched out and he started experimenting with barley. And it was really in barley that he was able to develop a kind of experimental setup that really let him decisively show to his colleagues that he'd done this task of producing a mutation. Nothing major, just a change in the color. Instead of green, some of the barley seedlings were partially white or pale yellow. The white ones were already a known variation. It could have been passed down. But the yellow seedlings weren't. They were something completely new, the result of a single gene mutation causing chlorophyll deficiency. A useless change, but it demonstrated potential because it seemed to suggest that with radiation, scientists could roll the genetic dice and generate mutations on demand. It's called mutation breeding. You might also call it radiation breeding. And it's based on this idea that after millennia of occasionally stumbling upon useful changes in crops, now maybe we could create them. Maybe we could speed up evolution. Or at least maybe some of the random mutations triggered by radiation, well, they might prove valuable, which as we know, at least a few of them did. So now I want to take some time to get into the science of this and how it actually works, because it's really not as complicated as people might think. And to do that, I talked to someone who knows both plants and nuclear technology. So my name is Shoba Shivashankar. Dr. Shoba Shivasankar is the head of the plant breeding and genetics section at something called the Division of Nuclear Techniques in Food and Agriculture, which is part of the UN. The first question is an important one. What is radiation? For our purposes, radiation is what happens when there is an unstable atom and it is trying to get to its uh, stable state. And during that process, it is emitting the excess energy from it in terms of electromagnetic waves or as particles. And so that is actually what we call radiation. There are different types of radiation, some we interact with every day. Heat is a type of radiation, and so is visible light. But those are both low energy, not really the kind of radiation that we're talking about here. When we talk about radiation for the purposes of this story, we mean the higher energy forms of radiation, radiation that can actually penetrate physical matter to varying degrees, depending on how strong or energetic it is. If it is strong enough and can penetrate the tissue of a living organism, it can damage that tissue. If you've ever gotten a sunburn, that's exactly what happened. Tissue damage due to UV radiation. But sometimes the radiation penetrates beyond the tissue into an organism's DNA. If it gets into the cell and it interacts with the DNA, it can cause nicks and cuts in the DNA. Mutation happens when the DNA attempts to repair those nicks and cuts, but doesn't get things quite right. 
In people, these cell mutations can sometimes lead to cancer or to birth defects in the next generation. And similar things can happen to plants. But according to Dr. Shiva Sankar, there's also the possibility of a useful mutation, something that makes the plants easier to grow or better to eat, or even just interesting to look at. Say, for example, a redder-than-red grapefruit. Exactly. But there's no way to target specific results. You just expose a bunch of seeds or buds to radiation, grow them out, and see what you get. It's simple and completely random. When you're irradiating a seed, the seed of a crop, the only thing that's happening to that seed is that the tissue gets changed, its DNA gets changed. That seed itself is not radioactive. It cannot accept that radiation and then behave radioactively. In other words, irradiated seeds are perfectly safe for plant breeders to handle. So in the late 1920s, after Stadler's work with barley, there was this initial hope in the scientific community that radiation breeding might be the next big thing. But despite some pretty big talk about speeding up evolution, not a whole lot really came out of it. As early as 1930, just two years after he published his original findings, Stadler was already questioning whether radiation had any real value as a plant breeding tool or whether breeders would be better off just sticking to more conventional methods. And Bridget, that question on whether radiation breeding has any real value, that question comes up so many times in this story. Obviously, we have hindsight, so we know about the success stories, the grapefruit, the peppermint. But even that doesn't change the fact that mutation breeding as a technique is kind of like throwing darts in the dark. Or maybe a better comparison would be playing the lottery. Most of the time, you get nothing. So is it worth the effort and the resources for that small chance at something great? Stadler came to the conclusion that, no, it probably wasn't. And given that he was a hugely prominent scientist in the field, the pioneer of this technology, well, that kind of condemnation really could have been the end of mutation breeding. And it might have been, if not for an important turning point, or two. In 1938, a team of German and Austrian scientists discovered nuclear fission. And then, less than a year later, Germany invaded Poland leading to the outbreak of World War II. Britain is tonight making it clear to Adolf Hitler that if he does send his armies into Poland, Great Britain will go to war. These are today's main events. Germany has invaded Poland and has bombed many towns. General mobilization has been ordered in Britain and France. Armed with the understanding of fission, it took the U.S. government less than six years to develop the atomic bomb largely through a top-secret military program known as the Manhattan Project. And one of the Manhattan Project's key bomb-building sites was located about 25 miles west of Knoxville in Oak Ridge, Tennessee. It was also known as the Secret City. There were actually 75,000 people living here in August of 1945. It was the fifth largest city in the state of Tennessee, and it wasn't on any map. This is Ray Smith, a historian based in Oak Ridge. I found Ray through the Oak Ridge newspaper in his column called Historically Speaking, which he's been writing since 2006. Before that, he worked as a maintenance manager at the Y-12 National Security Complex, known as the birthplace of the atomic bomb. Now he's the official historian for the whole city. 
I reached out to Ray because I knew there was a resurgence of interest in mutation breeding not long after World War II, and I was curious how this transition from atomic bombs back to atomic agriculture actually happened. And it turns out that Oak Ridge played a pretty big role, though not entirely on purpose. It came down to a herd of Hereford cattle. On July the 16th of 1945, the atomic age was ushered in when the first gadget, it was called, was exploded in Alamogordo, New Mexico. This was known as the Trinity Test, the first ever detonation of a nuclear device. It was an isolated area, very remote, far from many ranches or any population, and they thought that would be a good place. Now, you might think, given that the U.S. was less than a month out from bombing Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that there would have been some interest in understanding the biological impact of this weapon. Stadler had shown that radiation could cause mutations. So what would nuclear fallout mean for plants and animals and people? But the Army was primarily focused on just making sure that it worked at all. So the first actual victims of nuclear fallout were entirely accidental. Farm animals, including those Hereford cattle, who were downwind from the test site. When the bomb went off, it kicked up a cloud of radioactive dust, which was carried by the wind over top of these animals. Those particles were falling out of the sky and were actually hitting on the backs of this herd of cattle. Raining down on them like a light snow. The fallout was primarily beta radiation, a less penetrative form than gamma or X-rays. Still, where it landed on the animals' backs, it caused open sores and lesions. And after the war, when things were a little less hush-hush, one local rancher actually filed a damage claim against the army. So in December of 1945, the government bought the 75 most impacted cattle. They were probably interested in observing the cattle for science, yes, but they were also probably interested in keeping things quiet. And they said, look, we need to watch these cattle and make sure that we understand what happens to them because they've been closest to the actual blast. So in order to monitor them, they shipped them to Oak Ridge and they put them in this location out uh, south of the city of Oak Ridge down on the Clinch River in a three bends area, three bends in the river, making some low, flat grassland. Within a couple of years, that grassland became the Agricultural Research Lab, a joint project of the University of Tennessee and the newly formed Atomic Energy Commission, or AEC, basically the peacetime arbiter of all things atomic. Now, obviously, this is a story about cattle, not crops. So it's a bit of a departure from what we've been talking about with mutation breeding, but it's kind of the origin story for post-war atomic agriculture. This accident triggered all these new questions about what might happen to living organisms and to food production systems in the event of a nuclear attack. Something that was a very real fear for a lot of people. Right, and not just because of the blast itself, but also because of this possibility of unforeseen biological consequences. But the AEC was concerned that if people got too scared, public opinion might turn against nuclear research altogether. And they definitely did not want that to happen. So one of their main goals was to try to manage this fear. 
And the real appeal of mutation breeding in agriculture is that mutations, are, they might be positive things, right? It might be a mutation that makes a cold-resistant orange. It might be a mutation that makes a disease-resistant wheat. And so one of the reasons why mutation plant breeding has such an appeal in this context is that it's a, a counter-narrative to the story of mutation that is, is really quite scary, which is the story of mutations in, in humans. Essentially, the goal was to give the atomic age an image upgrade and to provide some distance from that scarier side, something that was a little difficult to do when the place you're working in is the birthplace of the atom bomb. So in 1947, the AEC established a new nuclear research facility, a full 800 miles from Oak Ridge and its irradiated cattle, and just 70 miles east of Manhattan, Brookhaven National Lab. Brookhaven was dedicated entirely to the research of peacetime applications of atomic technology, without any of the destructive baggage which made it the perfect place for mutation breeding to make its comeback. Brookhaven was certainly, I would say, the center of the resurgence of mutation breeding in the United States. And it was in part through the actions of a particular biologist whose name was Ralph Singleton. Dr. Ralph Singleton was a Harvard-trained plant geneticist and sweet corn breeder who already had some experience in the world of mutation breeding. Ten years prior, during a sabbatical at the University of Missouri, he first experimented with radiation breeding while working with none other than Dr. Lewis Stadler. So when he was appointed Brookhaven senior geneticist in 1948, one of his first projects was taking Stadler's ideas and expanding on them by making use of a resource that Stadler never had, radioactive isotopes or radioisotopes. Access to radioisotopes meant that scientists could now produce gamma radiation, a higher frequency, more penetrative form than Stadler's X-rays. In 1949, Singleton began building a new mutation breeding tool using cobalt-60, a gamma-emitting radioisotope, as his source. He planted circular rows of crops around his source and called it the gamma field. This was a setup, an installation in which there was a central tower through which a piece of radioactive cobalt could be raised to the top of the tower to really, in some ways you might think of it as kind of showering radiation on a field of crops growing in concentric circles around the tower. Depending on their distance from that central source, plants would receive different doses of radiation. Compared to earlier experiments with radiation-induced mutation, the gamma field was something radically new. Instead of a quick blast of X-rays, plants in the field were subject to near-constant radiation, sometimes the entire growing season. And while initially a mutation-breeding skeptic, Singleton quickly became convinced that Stadler had been wrong, that radiation could produce new, beneficial crop varieties after all. He expanded the size of the field from 3 to 10 acres and increased the strength of the radiation source more than 100-fold. And in April of 1954, he shared his excitement during a congressional hearing on the contributions of atomic energy to agriculture. These studies have further shown that the old concept that all radiation-induced mutations are deleterious to the plant is not correct. We have evidence that some radiation-induced mutations 
are desirable changes. Singleton goes on to outline a few of the lab's greatest victories to date a white carnation plant that produced red flowers, and a variety of oats that was resistant to a disease called crown rust that was developed by one of their researchers in just a year and a half. He also lays out the lab's ongoing research projects, one program to produce strains of corn resistant to leaf blight, another to produce sweet corn resistant to bacterial wilt, and still another to develop new fruit varieties. And his confidence in the technique is unwavering. If only one in a thousand is beneficial, and if we screen enough material, we will catch that one. But his convictions weren't universally shared. Far from it. The dominant feeling of most geneticists and most plant breeders was that this was misdirected that it was fundamentally not founded on good genetic theory, good plant breeding ideas, and that it was not going to produce new crops, new fruits, new vegetables, in anything like the way that some people were claiming. So here we're back to that question that Stadler posed in 1930 about the value of mutation breeding and whether or not it's worth it. And the consensus from 1953 pretty much echoes Stadler's conclusions from 20 years earlier. So the question is, if popular scientific opinion was so much against mutation breeding, why did the research continue? From a PR perspective, it was in the government's best interest to promote these positive aspects of nuclear research. Not least because they are the ones funding some of its most destructive aspects, The ultimate goal was to shift public perception away from fear and towards acceptance, or even excitement. Possibly the most famous example of this particular propaganda campaign was President Eisenhower's Adams for Peace speech in December of 1953. The atomic age has moved forward at such a pace that every citizen of the world should have some comprehension In his speech, Eisenhower proposes the establishment of an international atomic energy agency. Experts would be mobilized to apply atomic energy to the needs of agriculture, medicine, and other peaceful activities. Notice here that he leads with agriculture. Probably not an accident. The waves of amber grain defined and in in many ways continue to define American power in the world and Americans' conceptions of of themselves. And so agriculture is a really potent area for being able to promise the delivery of new and better and more. Given rampant public fears of nuclear annihilation, stories about useful mutations help to paint an especially vivid picture of a different atomic endgame. Instead of a barren nuclear wasteland, a lush atomic paradise. You see a little bit of this digging through 1950s newspapers. Headlines like, Adam Age may produce bigger, better plants, and Adam to make desert fertile, food fresher. There's also a slew of government-produced films designed to educate the public on just how great all of this atomic stuff is. This is from one called, The Adam Comes to Town. Here's an event that takes place every autumn in the Southland. The peanut harvest. 
At this experimental farm operated by North Carolina State University, the peanuts being so carefully classified and tagged were grown from seeds radiated in atomic reactors. Incidentally, the peanuts in the film, a variety called NC4X, were grown from seeds irradiated at Oak Ridge. They got a lot of media attention, mostly because of their size. These are giants created by radiation. And we're actually going to come back to these peanuts in just a minute, but in a very different context. So far, we've been operating in the world of government research facilities, which for at least the first decade after World War II is really the domain of atomic agriculture. But in the late 1950s, that starts to change. Somehow, some of that technology leaks out into the civilian sphere, to the point that you start to see regular people, housewives and business executives and dentists, trying to grow their own mutant plants in their backyards. After the break, we dive into the 1960s fad of atomic gardening. If there's one thing Kohler knows, it's innovative sink design. So that got me wondering, do my colleagues at America's Test Kitchen know how to fill in the blank? Hello? Hey, Caroline, it's Bridget. I need you to finish the sentence for me. Okay. Everything but the... Everything but the... Hmm. Um... Cat dragged in? Old fish in the freezer. The peanut butter. Everything but the kitchen sink. For everything, including the kitchen sink, there's Kohler. Take, for example, Kohler's Whitehaven apron front sink. It's a farmhouse-style sink made from enamel cast iron, which means it's stain-resistant. Plus, it resists chipping, cracking, and burning. So your sink will look beautiful and will perform beautifully for years. Learn more at Kohler.com. Hey, Proof listeners. This is Jack Bishop, and I'm here to talk to you about Miyoko's Creamery and their new vegan cheddar cheese. I recently had the opportunity to taste the cheese with the America's Test Kitchen cookbook team. So we're just tasting these and talking about them and seeing what we think about flavor, texture. We evaluated the cheese on flavor and texture. We were really impressed. We felt like they had a little pull to them when they were melted. The cheddar, I think, and is like... cheddar actually tastes, tastes a little... Tastes like cheddar. Like, yeah. It tastes like cheddar. Do you like it? Yeah, I actually do. Yeah. Most vegan cheeses on the market are waxy in texture. They have these off flavors. Miyoko's cheddar tastes like dairy cheddar, and it melts like dairy cheddar. If you enjoy eating plant-based dishes like I do, this cheese is a reason to celebrate. It's made from natural ingredients, so it's good for the planet and good for you. Learn more at miyokos.com. That's M-I-Y-O-K-O-S dot com. OXO Good Grips launched in 1990 with the initial goal of making a single kitchen task better for a very special someone. OXO Vice President of Global Brand Strategy and Marketing, Karen Schnellwar, tells us the story. Our founder, Sam Farber, was with his wife, Betsy. She struggled with mild arthritis, and he watched her peel apples for an apple tart, and he watched her, like, have trouble with it, and thought, gosh, there's got to be a better way. 30 years later, OXO has created hundreds of products with its signature ergonomic grip, made for all different kinds of hands. It's really, it's a beautiful thing when you can include people and empower them. Like we're literally putting tools in people's hands. Learn more at OXO.com. That's OXO.com. Before the break... 
we learned how mutant crops factored into a Cold War propaganda campaign. And now we're going to talk about who bought into that campaign, as in who actually spent money. So, quick confession. If I had to pick a favorite thing about this whole story, it might be the ads for this ridiculous seed business. The most exciting gardening adventure you'll ever have with amazing atomic energized seeds. Imagine 120 tomatoes on a single vine, eight ears on a stalk of corn, marigolds nine feet tall. Incredible as it may seem, all of these are actual results from seeds bombarded with gamma rays from a radioactive isotope. Between 1959 and 1962, they were popping up in newspapers and magazines around the country, all of them making wild claims and using exclamation points very liberally. And I really think they speak volumes to the creativity of the company's founder, Clarence J. Spees, an oral surgeon from Vermont. As a dentist, Spees was familiar with radiation. He'd worked with it before. He'd even messed around exposing plants to x-rays way back in 1937 while working as an instructor of oral surgery. And around the early 1950s, he moved to Tennessee, and he took a job at the Dental Health Center in Oak Ridge, just a stone's throw from the former Manhattan Project facilities. From there, the origin story of the seed business goes like this. Spees was trying to plant grass on the farm where he lived, and he was having a lot of trouble. For some reason, this prompted him to consult Dr. Marshall Brucer, chairman of the medical division at Oak Ridge Institute of Nuclear Studies. Dr. Brucer told Spees about the facility's agricultural research and suggested that maybe hardier grasses could be developed by exposing seeds to radiation. Now, keep in mind that besides root canals, Spee's resume included patents for a pocketbook soap dispenser and a device for setting fractures. He considered himself something of an inventor. And here was someone telling him that he could actually invent a living organism. All he needed was a little bit of radioactive cobalt. Lucky for him, the Atoms for Peace program had launched just a few years earlier, and one part of it involved encouraging atomic entrepreneurship. So for a limited time, individuals could actually apply to the government for their very own source of Cobalt-60. I'd probably say don't try this at home, but nowadays you can't anyways. The government's gotten a little less loose with their radioactive materials since the 1950s. I think that's probably for the best. Probably. But in 1957, Spees got his hands on some cobalt-60, and he built a concrete bunker for it into which he could lower seeds, or whatever it was he wanted to irradiate. And about a year later, he dubbed his fledgling company Oak Ridge Atom Industries and started selling atomic energized seeds which customers could buy and then plant in their own gardens to see whether or what kind of mutations might emerge from them. So he was really selling the idea of atomic irradiated plants as a kind of grow-your-own-adventure. By the end of 1960, Oak Ridge Atom Industries had sold 20,000 seed packets to aspiring atomic gardeners across the United States. But that was only a tiny fraction of his consumer base. Another 3.5 million seed packets made their way across the Atlantic to England, specifically 
to the seaside resort town of Eastbourne. The sunniest town in a notoriously dreary country, Eastbourne was home to Spee's exclusive UK importer, Muriel Howarth, a 70-something British society lady and probably one of the period's most eccentric nuclear optimists. She was importing the seeds not just for herself, but for a very niche horticultural club that she had started up. It was called the Atomic Gardening Society. And it was just the latest in a long succession of atomic projects that Howorth involved herself in. She hosted atomic film luncheons and even held a radioactivity jubilee. She self-published several books about the atom, including a fantastically titled children's book, Atoms in Wonderland. She even scripted, choreographed, and directed an educational play-slash-ballet called Isotopia, performed at the Waldorf Hotel in London in October of 1950. It was written about in Time magazine. An ample electron in black lace wound her way around two matrons labeled proton and neutron, while an elderly ginger-haired Geiger counter clicked out their radioactive effect on a pretty girl named Agriculture. Awkward male gaze aside, this account hints at one of the cornerstones of Howarth's atomic advocacy work, educating the lay woman about the possibilities of the atom, with the goal of leading them out of the kitchen and into the atomic age, or at least into a new kind of kitchen, one featuring a pantry stocked with nuclear technology. So, in 1959, she got her hands on some mutation bread nuts and decided to host a full-fledged dinner party in the great dining hall of London's Royal Commonwealth Society. The nuts in question were, of course, NC4X, those giant peanuts. In March 1959, for the first time, I held an irradiated seed in my hand. I think this will be a thrill for every lay experimenter. At that time, however, I had not the idea of planting the nut. She invited her scientist friends to dinner, excited to show off this atomic milestone. But much to her dismay, her guests failed entirely to grasp the significance of the discovery. So afterwards, disappointed and in possession of a lot of leftover nuts, Horth decided to toss out one of her potted begonias and replace it with an uncooked peanut, just to see what would happen. It grew, unusually quick, and before long, it was two feet tall. So she named it the Muriel Howorth Peanut and called the papers. Beverly Nichols, the gardening correspondent for the Sunday Dispatch, practically gushed. Yesterday, I held in my hands the most sensational plant in Britain. It is the only one of its kind. Nothing of its sort has ever been seen in the country before. To me, it had all the romance of something from outer space. It is the first atomic peanut. And actually, at times, his description verges on indecent. It is a lush green plant and gives you a strange, almost alarming sense of thrusting power and lusty health. It holds a glittering promise in its green leaves, the promise of victory over famine. Howarth, ever the self-publicist, used the media attention to launch the Atomic Gardening Society. 
Soon, more than 300 would-be atomic gardeners had written to her about membership, which came with the promise of six free mutant nuts. And within a year, Haworth was the exclusive importer for Oak Ridge Atom Industries, bringing in a wide variety of atom-blasted seeds. I now felt that by some stroke of luck, which is difficult to ascribe to chance, I'd been given the opportunity, so much longed for, to bring science right into the homes of people. Her dream was to find a crop that grew large enough, yielded high enough to end world hunger. She envisioned a system where citizen scientist gardeners planted and monitored atomic veggies in backyard plots and then sent any significant findings to scientific institutions. After all, if more seeds planted meant more chances at useful mutations, why not transform the whole of Great Britain into a network of laboratory gardens? By 1962, Howorth was entering her late 70s, and her eyesight was in decline. She couldn't keep managing the society herself, so she passed the baton. The new president apparently lacked her charisma because suddenly all mentions of the Atomic Gardening Society in the press stopped. Though, to be fair, the society was likely doomed from the start. According to one former society member, only about 10% of Spee's seeds actually germinated, making them a tough sell for repeat customers. I think the object of Clarence Spees and his sales pitch was really to get people thinking that they might produce something new and weird and wonderful, but the chances of that happening, he knew, and certainly any competent scientist at the time would have known that, that there was very little behind that. As for Spees, he moved on as well, switching gears from seeds to... Atomic Energized Golf Balls. Amazing Energized Golf Ball will improve your game. Yes, the oohs and ahs of the onlookers when you tee off will increase your golfing pleasure. The mutation breeding program at Brookhaven lasted a little bit longer, into the 1970s. But both interest and faith in the technique was definitely on the decline, at least domestically. Partly this was because of advances in biology leading to more precise breeding methods. Think GMOs. But as we already know, it wasn't all for nothing. We already touched on the peppermint and the barley. And now we're going to talk a little bit more about that red grapefruit. So Texas, and specifically the Rio Grande Valley, way, way down at its southern tip, is the second largest grapefruit-producing region in the country, after Florida. And nearly all of the grapefruit grown here is just one variety, the Rio Red, though it's usually marketed as Rio Star. Beyond the peppermint, beyond the peanuts, this is the poster child for mutation breeding in the United States. So I went down to Texas during grapefruit season to learn a little more about the mutants that piqued my interest in atomic agriculture in the first place. The grapefruit have... uh... Let me see, almost there. Dr. Eliezer Luzada leads the breeding program at the Texas A&M Citrus Center in Westlaco, about eight miles north of the Mexican border. And radiation is one of the tools that he uses to develop new varieties, even today. Out in the orchard, Dr. Luzada took me on a journey through grapefruit history, 
starting with a white-fleshed, seedy grapefruit that looks a lot like the ones I saw growing wild in the Caribbean. This is the Duncan grapefruit. Okay, uh. so this is the first one, and you see the amount of seeds. Yeah, it's full, full it's of seeds. Full of seeds. This is more or less what grapefruits looked like back when they first arrived in the U.S. in 1823. But over the years, a series of random natural mutations led to increasingly vibrant fruit. This is the Thompson grapefruit. It's a kind of peach color. This is called the Ray Red grapefruit. It's getting redder. Exactly. And here in Texas, they have a saying. In the case of grapefruit, they say that the redder, the better. And what they mean by that is, regardless of taste, customers like red grapefruit more, meaning they buy more. In 1929, one lucky Texas grower discovered the ruby red, and naturally red grapefruit. It was the reddest grapefruit to date, but for breeders at the Westlaco Citrus Center back in the 1960s, even that wasn't red enough. So they sent buds from a ruby red tree to Brookhaven to be irradiated. And after more than a decade of observation and selection, they eventually developed the Rio Red. Oh, wow. This is the Rio Red. It's not just a red, it's a bright red. I radiate lemons, I radiated uh, uh, pomelos. And see, my radiation program is based on the need of the growers. So I need to look at what the growers really want. In the case of citrus, one thing the growers want is seedless varieties, because that's what consumers want. And according to Dr. Lozada, that's actually something that radiation is really well-suited to produce, because radiation can render plants sterile, and sterile plants don't produce seeds. But hoping for seedlessness really just means that he's keeping an eye out for it. Because in mutation breeding, you have absolutely no control over the outcome. You get what you get. It could be something useful, like shorter trees that are easier to harvest. Or it could be a really bitter fruit. But for Dr. Lozada, that unpredictability is part of what makes it worthwhile. And exciting. If I could come with an easy-peeling grapefruit, this would be the most amazing thing. Can we get this radiation? I don't know. But I cannot say no, because when we are looking at irradiation, it's very random. It's random mutation. Besides the Citrus Center, there really are only a few places in the United States doing mutation breeding. But outside the U.S. is a whole different story. In China, the second most widely grown wheat variety comes from mutation breeding. Dr. Shobha Shivasankar, who you may remember from that crash course on the science behind mutation breeding. Another example is Vietnam, where over 20 rice varieties have been developed over the last few years. In case of soybean, about 50% of the area under soybean in Vietnam is occupied by mutant varieties. There are other examples, too. Heat-resistant cotton in Pakistan and drought-tolerant groundnuts in Sudan. 
Hardy mutant barley has boosted yields on terrace farms in the Andes, while a salt-tolerant rice crop has increased arable acreage in the Mekong Delta. There are even a few giants. For years, China has been using cosmic radiation to grow two-foot cucumbers and eggplants that weigh as much as bowling balls by shooting seeds into space on recoverable satellites. It definitely calls to mind those Cold War visions of atomic paradise. But there's still a lot of disagreement about the value of mutation breeding as a science. Even today, everyone I spoke to was either extremely skeptical or wildly enthusiastic. And Stephanie, which are you? I mean, it's hard to stay neutral when you've eaten as much mutant citrus as I have, but I think that no matter where you land on that spectrum, there's really no denying how compelling the technology is as a concept. The way that it's sold, the enthusiasm that it inspires, the idea of you never know what you're going to get, but you might get something great. It's like playing the lottery, but instead of money, you're gambling for the chance to play God, to create something totally new and different that could make the world a better place. Who wouldn't get excited by that? Thanks to Stephanie Roby for reporting this story. Stephanie originally reported the story for Eaton Magazine. It's a gorgeous new print magazine that focuses on all things food history. Go find it at eatonmagazine.com. That's E-A-T-E-N magazine.com. And if you want to see some pictures of atomic farming, well, we've put those photos up on our website for you. And that's www.americastestkitchen.com slash proof. Go check it out. Oh, and if you like Proof, then be sure to subscribe wherever you listen so you'll get brand new episodes as soon as they drop. And while you're there, why not leave us a rating or write us a review? It really helps other people find the show. Proof is hosted and produced by me, Bridget Lancaster. Our executive producer is Caitlin Kelleher. Sarah Joyner is our managing producer, associate producer, Caroline Rickert. Scoring sound design and mixing by Matt Boynton of Ultraviolet Audio. Brian Campbell of Signal Sounds composed our theme music. Additional music by Kyle Forrester and Jordan Pearson. Post-production supervisor is Hen Margolis. Our production manager is Diane Knox. Fact-checking and additional research by Kaya Williams. Jack Bishop is a Gamma Field and Chief Creative Officer of America's Test Kitchen. David Nussbaum is our CEO. Thanks again to our sponsors, Kohler, Oxo, Miyoko's Creamery, and NakedWines.com. Proof is a production of America's Test Kitchen.